seated. Amen. We do want to be where he is, don't we? This is my friend Glenn uh, Meldrum. He's been our speaker along with his wife this weekend at our Pure Life Conference, and so we asked if he'd be willing to stay this morning, and he graciously agreed to do that. Uh, Glenn was saved, I think, probably before I was born. He's an old man. Oh, my. <laughs> but he's a seasoned pastor. No, All okay. right, there yeah. you go. Uh, and we've enjoyed having him with us here this weekend. So, uh, Glenn, let me pray for you, and then you share with us, all right? God, thank you for Glenn. Thank you for his heart. Uh, thank you for his testimony. Thank you for saving him uh, from a life of sin and placing him out of darkness and into light. Thank you for the work that he's done in Detroit and now around our country. And thank you for his wife, who's been faithful to come alongside of him and also uh, be a testimony for your goodness as she ministers as well. And so I pray now that you would bless Glenn with what we need to hear as part of this service this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Jesus. Hey, that works better. Well, good morning. I'm not going to take the time to go in my testimony. I just would really like just to get into the Word and to look at that. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. And we'll be reading from that in a few minutes, so just keep it open in your lap. I just want to begin with some foundational thought and lay some ideas out here. And really what we're going to be looking at is how to live the victorious Christian life. That's what it's really going to come down to be, the nitty-gritty of it. And so sometimes we can make this Christian life so complicated that we really don't understand how it works and we think it impossible then to live out. But God has made it possible through His grace, not naturally, but through His grace it's available. And I want to look at Paul, and so that's really what we're going to do is we're going to look at Paul and we're going to see what made Paul Paul, why Paul was the man of God that he was, and why God used him in such a way. And I think this is very important. But we have to begin at the beginning. What made Paul the man that he was began at his salvation. And so here's this man, a religious man, a very religious man, and a man that is thinking he's doing God's service by persecuting the church. And so he gets a written document from the Sanhedrin Council in Jerusalem giving him permission to persecute the church in Damascus. So he's on his way there. And he's probably boasting in himself over how the Christians know he's coming, and he is just filled with this happiness that they're trembling at that thought. I'm coming after him. They know I'm coming after him. And he thought he was doing God's service. He thought he was doing God's will. And then in the goodness and kindness of God, God went and did something that disturbed him. And many times people, preachers, Teachers can refer to God as a gentleman. I do not believe God is a gentleman. And I believe that's a very incorrect representation of him. So a gentleman does not take somebody, knock him to the ground, terrify him, and blind him. God's not out to be a gentleman. He's out to be a savior. And so that's what he was going to do. That's what he was doing. That's what he did in the life of Paul. He shook that man to the very core of his being. This man was so terrified being in the sin that he had lived in that it says he fasted for three days from food and water. 
And it was at the end of that time that the Lord sent a man to pray for him, and that's when salvation came into the, this man's soul, and he was revolutionized from the inside out. Then it begins to tell us what happens, because his conversion account is in Acts chapter 9, and then it begins to tell us what happened. And so what is going on here is that this newborn babe in Christ begins to tell other people about Jesus, the Messiah, the one who had just blinded him, terrified him, and forgiven him. And it be he becomes so effective in sharing the gospel that the people he, has, he was going to Damascus uh, to, to meet to help persecute the church, they now were hunting him down. And so he had to flee in secret. He had to be let down in a basket over the wall of the city so he could flee. That was the newborn babe in Jesus. A man just saved. You know what we can do? We can go and say, well, he was a new convert and he was just excited, but, well, he'll grow out of that. And really what we mean by that is says he'll eventually grow as dead as the rest of us are. But that's not what happened to Paul. You see, as Paul matured in the faith, the fire burned hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. And that is the biblical model. What Paul had was a normal Christian conversion. It wasn't special. Now, of course, how Paul came to Christ was unique to him. We're not all going to have the light, some light shine upon us and be blinded and so on. But what came out of that divine confrontation was normal Christianity. We want to think that Paul was somehow special, that because he was special, well, you know, he had this special conversion, so God did special things through him. But Paul had a normal Christian experience. And I think it's very important that we take our life and lighten up with Paul and say, am, am I a Christian like Paul? Do I live as what Paul did? Am I growing more in love with Jesus day by day, year by year, or is the exact opposite happening? You know who the most on fire people in the church should be? The oldest saints. Not the newborn babes. They don't know how to walk it. It should be the older saints that start having this passion for God. The people that know how to shake heaven in prayer, seeking the face of God because they're walking so near to him that their prayer has power. It should be as we grow older that the fire gets hotter, that the passion gets greater, that we should be pursuing them with a greater intensity because we know we're getting closer and closer to that day where we will finally stand before him. And so Paul, on his second missionary journey, maturing in the faith, now here's the man of God, and he comes to the city of Thessalonica, and the testimony of an unsaved man trying to attack Paul is absolutely wonderful. I wish that this would be written about my life. It says in Acts 6, 17, verse 6, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. You see, that's biblical Christianity, not the tame thing that we have developed in America, but this, this faith that is so revolutionary in a spiritual sense, not blood and guns and, and all that kind of stuff, but that which is so powerful spiritually that it brings change to people. It brings a revolution to the hearts of others as they are being set free from their sin and finding this wonderful life in Christ. And Paul continues to grow. A while later, now he comes to Ephesus, which, is, which was a major Roman colony of over 300,000 people. And again, he comes to town, and the people know he has come to town. 
because so many be, are being saved, another riot starts. Not that Paul started the riot in, in uh, Thessalonica, nor did he start the riot in Ephesus. They were started in an effort to try and silence Paul to either have him arrested or killed. And so here's this man that has such a passion for God and they're wanting to take his life because so many people are being saved. And I want you to think about this. With 300,000 people, the silversmiths were so threatened by Paul coming to town because so many people were getting saved that it was the silversmiths that were building idols to the goddess Diana or Artemis and they wanted to silence this man because they were losing that much money. You know what that would mean in this area here? That you were so on fire winning so many people to Jesus that the drug dealers wanted to burn your church down, that the bars were wanting to bring lawsuits against you because you were so changing the face of your community. Where is the church in America that is doing that? I just read an article last night about how the church is exploding in Iran, literally exploding in, a, in Iran. It's phenomenal what God is doing when he gets a hold of some people and they begin to have this passion for God. Paul had a normal Christian conversion. And so, do you have that? Have you ever really come to that? Or is your Christianity something very, very different from what Paul had and Paul lived out? In Philippians chapter 3, we are going to get a glimpse of the heart of Paul. Paul is going to share his heart and he's going to share some truth that made him the man of God that he was, why he was that kind of man. In verses 4 through 6, I'm not going to take the time to read it, what Paul does is he begins to outline his worldly credentials. This is Paul, the unsaved man, that he's writing about. Now, let's just look at Paul, the unsaved man, for a moment, because I think it's very important. Paul was a religious man. He was self-righteous. Do you know what self-righteousness is? It is the belief that we are right with God because we've done particular things or do particular things. We're right with God because we do these particular stuff, keep these particular commandments, do these particular rituals, go to the right type of church, and, and so on. We have these formulas we keep or have kept, and as a result of that, we are right with God. But that is not Christianity. That's how Paul viewed his Jewish faith at that time. And he goes with these credentials of being a very prestigious Jewish man that was an up-and-coming great in Israel, wanting to be a mover and shaker. That's what he wanted. He wanted to be a man that was a powerhouse, was known. He probably had his sights set on becoming one of the Sanhedrin council, which would have been the practical application of the ruling of the people of Israel. He was a man zealous for the law, zealous. Look at how well I keep the law. Look at I do the sacrifice. Look at how I keep the feast. Look at how I hold to the Sabbath. Look at how I hold to, to the proper eating and the diet of a Jew. Look at how I do this. Look at how good of a man I am. And yet his entire life was at war with God. There may be some here that you are in that same identical condition 
in the 21st century, where you rely upon what you've done in the past, you rely on your religion, you rely on your self-righteousness, you say, I'm not like that person, I'm not like the drug addicts, I'm not like the prostitutes, I'm not like those who are addicted to sex, I'm not on porn, I'm not in an affair, look at I'm a wonderful person, I must be a good Christian because I've done these particular things. But you have no personal relationship with Jesus. You rely upon what you have done in the past, you rely upon the do's and don'ts of life, but you don't have that relationship with Jesus. Paul was a man that was going to be a somebody. More than likely, I would venture to say, just from the situation, him being a Pharisee and all that was going on, he was a wealthy man, prominent man, prominent family, going someplace, respected respected in the synagogue that he was a part of, respected by the Sanhedrin Council, respected by Israel at large. He was probably well-known. And yet it tells us that he had come to a place when Jesus confronted him that he counted all that he was as loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Let's read verses 7 through 11 of Philippians chapter 3. I'll be reading out of the 1984 NIV. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that come that not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. We will see within these verses the heart of Paul, especially in verse 10 when we get to that point. Many years ago, there was a worship song that was released. And I remember the first time I heard this worship song, I broke down weeping. And I'm going to read to you the, one of the stanzas from it. It says, All I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you. Well, the entire song comes out of this portion of Scripture that we just read. You want to know what brought me to tears? That little phrase, and wars to own. It's not something that Paul exactly said, but it's very much alluded to with what Paul is talking about here. I remember what I was as a young man strung out on drugs. I was a hippie during the hippie movement. I lived to party. That's all I wanted. I had no ambition in my life other than to live high 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and do it till my last breath. That's all I wanted in life. I had no desire for, for Jesus. I was raised Catholic and despised everything about what I was raised in and the whole thing. My dad was a cop. I purposely became a criminal. I went in the total opposite direction. It was not a godly home that I was raised in. It was an ungodly home. Marriage and divorce and marriage again, divorce again, marriage again. Terrible home to grow up in. 
I wanted to be loved and accepted, and I went in the drug, in the drug culture to find it because I didn't know any other place to find it. But it wasn't there. It was all a lie and an illusion, but yet, nonetheless, you numb your mind and you think everything's great because you just can't even think straight. And then when I wasn't looking for him, he broke in my world. What I was doing in my life was what Paul was doing in his life. He was fighting and clawing and warring and striving. He wanted happiness. He wanted joy. He wanted acceptance. He wanted love. And he's trying to get these things and he's seeking after them and, and hoping that somehow he can do it. In his life, he was thinking that I'll be happy. I will be, when I'm a somebody in Israel, when I have power and I'm positioned and maybe I'm on the San Diego Council, then I will have everything I'm looking for. Now, I do not doubt in the least you know what fog is, right? All right? You know the strange thing about fog? You can really see it, right? I mean, it's right there. I have been in fogs that are so heavy that it's like you could reach out and, and just grab it. You couldn't even see your hand. It's that thick in front of you. Next time you see a fog, I want you to try something. Try and just reach out and grab some. What, you're gonna, what are you going to get? What's going to be in your hand? Nothing. You see, that's what the devil and that's what the world offers us, an illusion. Put something before our, our, our eyes saying you'll be happy when, if you have more money, if you have more this, if you do this, if you become this kind of person, whatever, all these lies and illusions that are put before us. It's even self-righteousness that I will be happy when I'm a self-righteous person. And you may not say it like that. You may just call yourself a religious person. But I'll be happy when, and you go to seek this thing, and just when your hand is ready to land upon that thing, you find there's nothing there. And then there's another illusion, another fog, and you seek after that until your hand is just ready to grasp it, and nothing is there. And again and again you seek after these things, and with each fighting and warring and clawing and striving to get what you think is going to matter, you end up more and more empty and hurting because all the things you have chased after cannot satisfy. And you know what? This is what defines every unsaved person out there in this world to a lesser, greater degree. That's what I was in the world, in the drug culture. That's what businessmen are in their, in their, their million-dollar homes and all the wealth that they got in their exotic car. They are hurting just as much, just as much. And that's what can go on within the church among those who claim to be Christian, that they are still warring and fighting and clawing and trying to get somewhere, thinking that when they get a particular possession or place or situation, they will be happy. But they are deceived just like the world is because this world can't give us what we think it can give us. Trying to catch a fog. Trying to think that those things are going to satisfy. That all we need is a wife or a husband. All we need is children. Finally, if I have children, I'll be happy. Finally, if I have this situation, a bigger house, that's what I need. If I, if I wasn't struggling so much to pay the bills, then I would be happy. But Paul had come to a place to speak of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. He came to a place that when he was confronted by God, and not just because he was confronted by God on that Damascus road, but because he encountered God in the moment of salvation, that when he finally yielded himself to Christ, this salvation came bursting into, the, into his life. He was in darkness, religious darkness. 
religious darkness, thinking he was okay, thinking he was right with God. But God showed him, says, Paul, you are kicking against the pricks. You are fighting against me. You are at war with me. You are not walking with me. You are hostile to me. You trust in your religion. You do not know the true and living God. And I have to imagine that would be an absolutely horrifying experience. I was a, I was a drug addict, so you know I knew I was a sinner. I knew I didn't understand if the, the, the whole concept of it, but I knew I wasn't a good person. But can you imagine how horrifying that is to think you're a good person? All of a sudden, God say, you are not a good person. Do you know what? There's not a good person on this planet. They do not exist. Good people are illusions. They're things that we, we try to reach for and we say, wow, I'm a good person because I don't do this and I don't do that and, and so on. But goodness is not defined by what other people do or don't do. Goodness is defined by the nature and character of God. Put yourself up to God and you are absolutely filthy rags. But we really don't want to look at that because we want to think we're good people. I'm okay. I've gone through all the rituals. I've done all this stuff. Look at what I do. Look at who I am. And for Paul to come to the reality of who he really was on the inside had to be absolutely devastating. That's why he fasted three days from food and water because he was torn to pieces. He saw what he really was. Go to the book of Revelation in, in chapter 2 and 3. God writes a letter to seven different churches, a personal letter. Would you want God to write you a letter? Would you want him to write you a letter? What would be in that letter? Because he knows you. He knows, he knows each of us. You know some of the terrifying words that are in some of those letters that the Lord wrote to those churches? Such as in Ephesus, saying, oh, you do all this stuff. You do all these great things. Look at how wonderful you are. And then he makes this statement, but I hold this against you. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love, and that word forsaken there is a word that is used for divorce. You've known me, but you have forsaken me. You've gone back to your worldly ambitions, the fighting, the clawing, the striving, the wanting. You have made that what you think life is all about, and you have left me behind. You have religious motions and actions, but you don't have the relationship. There's a principle in Scripture. It goes from cover to cover that we cannot take hold of God without an intense longing for Him. Let me ask a serious question here. How did the church in America ever come to the place to think that lukewarm Christianity was acceptable with God? How did we ever get there? How did we ever get there that we think a half-hearted devotion to Him is enough? How did we ever get to the place that we could think that we're Christian when we're prayerless, when we have no relationship with God? But we, I prayed the prayer... You know, I'm not a bad person. I don't do this and that and everything else. I'm okay. But there's no relationship. There's no aspect of intimate fellowship with the living God. It's easy to call ourselves Christian. It's a whole other thing to live in fellowship with God. And so Paul spoke of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. He looked at the world. He looked at his prosperity. He looked at all that he gained. And he said, it's, 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 it's nothing. It's dung. And he spoke of the surpassing greatness, that knowing Christ is greater than any possession, anything, any person. Have you come to that place in your life in reality, not in speaking it as a cliche, 
but in reality, that you have come to the place and say, God is worth it all. Man, I'll sell everything in a second. I'll sell everything in a second. He counted the world as dung. I like how the King James Version translates that word, dung, instead of rubbish. I'm an evangelist. I've traveled for the last 23 years across the country, and we have gone along the southern route of the country along Highway 10. And uh, if you've gone out that way, you start getting into Texas, you can be driving along, and all of a sudden this aroma starts filling your vehicle. Okay? You just start, I mean, it's like strong, and you're going, you know, you look at your spouse going, okay, what'd you do, you know? And, uh, you know, but it gets stronger. And, and then all of a sudden you see this ocean of black and white. Okay? I mean, acre upon acre upon acre of cows. And the aroma is intense. Okay? You smell dung. That's what the world is. That's what the world smells like. When we are of the world, the smell of the world is upon us. It defines us. I was speaking at a drug and alcohol, a Christian-based drug and alcohol rehab in Texas, and there was a guy there that was a cowboy at one of these really large feedlots. And I just asked him, how do you deal with it, the smell? And he says, you just get used to it. But just imagine this. Here's this cowboy, did his day's work, and he needs something from Walmart's. And so he goes into Walmart, and there's this, like, haze, this brown haze around him. And everywhere he goes, this aroma is just following him. You know, it's on his boots, it's into his, into his pants, it's all over. And, you know, he could go and take some cologne and spray it all over him, and now you just have this sweet, nasty smell. I mean, it's terrible. Everybody else can smell it but him. Isn't that interesting how we can have this stench in us because we're not walking near Jesus. The world is defining our lives. We're having the smell of hell upon us and we think we're okay and everybody ends up seeing it. What's your marriage like? Is your marriage an aroma of heaven or an aroma of hell? What do your children smell spiritually from you? Do you hear what I just said? That's serious stuff because there's a lot of marriages here that are nightmares. There's a lot of marriages that are in shambles. Why is a marriage bad? Or let me put it in this way. What do we call it so often when a marriage is bad, a home is, is, is in disarray? We'll call it a dysfunctional home, right? That's a big, word, big idea, the dysfunctional home. What is the biblical model, what is the biblical term for dysfunctional? You know what that is? Sinful. We don't want to say that we have a sinful home and a sinful marriage because there's sin in the life of the husband and sin in the life of the wife and they're being a nightmare to each other. We have a little dysfunction. No, you don't. You have a nightmare. You have this terrible thing inside of you that is causing you terrible things in your family and your children is seeing it and they are, they are appalled at it because they know the truth of it. Everybody else might think that you're just this wonderful Christian, but at home... They know the truth of what you are. They know what you are. Paul had come to the place to count this world as dung. 
saying, I don't want the stench of hell on me anymore. I don't want the smell of that. I want the aroma of heaven. My, I want my home to have this beautiful aroma of God being there, of his presence defining it, that my children know what it is for God to be in a home, that my wife knows what it is to have a godly husband that's not looking at filth with his eyes or being a man filled with anger and bad attitudes because he is not truly a saved man or a woman that is full, filled with so much bitterness and all this junk inside of her because she's seen what her husband has been and she allows herself to be corrupted on the inside and endures a nightmare marriage, not allowing Jesus to change her because she's filled with so much remorse and bitterness. He counted the world as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. And here's the key. This is really serious. We will never, ever, ever Count the world as dung until we get a fresh revelation of who Jesus really is. We have to have a fresh revelation. We have to see this Jesus, the biblical Jesus, see the wonder of who he is, be in awe of this God that he would break into our world to bring us to salvation, that we have to be a people that, that begin to fall in love with him and we see him worth giving up everything that we may obtain him, that we may know him. And this becomes something that is a passion then, that we want marriages that are pleasing to God because we want to be pleasing to God ourselves. We don't want our marriage to be, be distasteful and contrary to who Christ is. So we want everything about our marriage to be dealt with in a godly way. And you know what that means? That you stop pointing the finger at your spouse. You stop saying, God, we'll have a good marriage when my husband finally stops acting like that. We'll have a good marriage when, when she finally begins to, to submit. And the whole time you can point the finger at a spouse, at another person, at a parent, at a child, and say, I'm having these problems because of them, and fail to see that the issue is really in your own bosom. That is what's inside of you. He counted the world as dung because he saw the prize of life. It lost, the world lost all of its attraction. One moment, it's gone. Yes, we need food and clothing and, and a house. And, and Paul was a tent maker and sometimes he made tents and sometimes all he did was preach. But it wasn't about money. It wasn't about possessions. It was about knowing this God and taking the wonder of who this God is to a hurting, dying world. Letting those who are rushing to hell, to a real and literal hell, know them that there's an answer, that there's a way of escape. And this is what burned inside of him. He said he wanted to know Christ. How do we know Christ? Let me make this real simple. We know Christ by having a burning passion for him by wanting to know him. The man or woman that has a passion to know Jesus will know Jesus. And the man or woman that doesn't, won't. It's just that simple. And whatever you have a passion for, you surrender to. If you have a passion for porn, you're going to look at it all the time. You have a passion for TV, you're going to have your TV going on all hours of the day because that's what burns you. You will know the, the movies and the, and the shows and everything else that's going on. You'll be so educated about it. Or maybe your passion is football, that you know all the football stats and you know all the stuff about it and you're consumed with it. Maybe it's money or whatever it might be, but those are the things that burn inside of you and that's what you surrender to because that's what defines you. But when Jesus is what burns inside of us, a passion to know him is what really defines us, then everything of our life is conformed to this. Our pursuit of God becomes everything to us. Our being pleasing to him is burning inside of us. Some years ago, a few years ago, I was agonizing in prayer one day over myself. Okay, I was just struggling with Glenn. 
And as I'm struggling with it, I just started praying in a particular way. And this idea has never left me. It's there. I just do it all the time. Simple little prayer says, Jesus, I am so sick of being a brat. God, I just want to be a good son. I just want to bring joy to you, Jesus. And that has been a prayer I bring out again and again and I cry because I know that without Jesus, I'm a mess. Paul wanted to gain Christ. And to gain Christ, he had a burning passion. And the Lord will not let us be disappointed if that's what really burns in us. Then we come to verse 10. This is the cry that makes men and women of God. This is the cry that sets a church on fire. And it's the cry, I want to know Christ. This is the cry that takes people that are naturally bent towards sin and makes them become a people that are aching to be clothed in the righteousness that comes alone from Christ. This cry needs to be burning in the heart of every single person. And if it's not burning in the heart of Christians, then something is wrong with your Christianity. If your heart is not saying, I want to know Christ, I want to know you better, show me who you are, God. Show me who you are in a greater way. That's what Paul prayed for the Ephesian church in chapter 1, verse 17. He said, I pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And so as a preacher, I'm all the time crying, God, I must know you better. How can I reveal you better to people if I know you so little? I must know him more to be able to give more of him to others, to reveal him in a more faithful and and Christ-like way, to show the world this Jesus because I'm striving to live out what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. I want to know Christ. Makes men and women of God. You want to be a man or woman of God? This is where it happens. This is how it happens. This is what will take you to your knees and make you a man or woman of God because you're seeking hard after God because you're wanting to know him. If you have no prayer life, I question whether you are really a true follower of Jesus or not. Because those who love Jesus want to be with Jesus. They want to spend time with him. They want to know him. They want to walk with him. They want to be in that place of fellowship. And if you do not have that desire to be with him, if everything else is about business and life and all the busy things that we can do, then we have missed something very important. Corrie Ten Boom, some of you might know that name. She uh, was martyred. Well, she wasn't martyred, but her, her family was martyred for the cause of Christ during World War II. And, and she went and made a powerful little statement. She says, beware of the barrenness of a busy life. You can get yourself so busy that you walk away from Jesus in the midst of the busyness, still being religious, because you have no fellowship with him. You do not know him. You do not know him. Is the cry in your heart to know Christ? It's not the intellectual knowledge about God that quenches man's ancient heart thirst, but it's the very person and presence of God. That's the only one that can quench this thirst that's inside of us, this hunger that's there, this desire for God. Some of you may be familiar with the name David Brainerd. Brilliant young man. Brilliant young man. He was part of the first great awakening that if we follow history, began with Jonathan Edwards. David Brainerd was friends, was friends with Jonathan Edwards. He was going to marry Jonathan Edwards' daughter. Brainerd was offered the most prestigious church in the colonies at that time, which was in Boston, and he turned it down to do something that was unpopular, to become a missionary to the 
Indians in the Delaware Valley. He'd go out there and the testimonies that's in his diary of what's left of it is of this man that would get outside of a village of Indians and the sun would be coming up, the snow would be two feet deep and he'd begin to cry out, God, save him, save him, oh God. And by the time he was done praying, the snow would be melted around him and the sun would be setting. The accounts we do have of revival from this man is tremendous where there are some accounts where the Indians would grab him to pull him off his horse, not to harm him, but begging him to preach to them the truth of Jesus. And as he preached to them, they'd begin to go and disperse in the woods as they're weeping and wailing in agony over their sin, a revelation of the reality of their rebellion against God. And then all of a sudden you'd hear the screaming and shouting as forgiveness broke in and they felt that weight come off them and forgiveness come flooding into their life when they enter into fellowship with the living God. He wrote in his diary this powerful little statement. This is the heart of David Brainerd. This is the heart of Paul. He said, when I enjoy God, I feel my desires of him the more ravenous and my thirstings after holiness the more unquenchable. Oh, this pleasing pain, it makes my soul press after God. This is David Brainerd's way of saying, I want to know Christ. This is what made the man of God, David Brainerd. This is what made the man of God, Paul of, Sar of Tarsus. This is what make men of God and women of God throughout history. When something begins to burn so hot in them and their cry is, I want to know you, it doesn't matter. Possessions don't matter. Jobs don't matter. Nothing else matters. I want to know you. I want to know you. I want everything to be defined by this place of fellowship with you. And when we begin to do that, we begin to taste a little bit of the glories of heaven because one day when we see him face to face, our life will be fully, completely saturated, immersed, engulfed, in fellowship with God. And if you don't want to be with Jesus now, why do you want to go to heaven? Do you understand what I just said there? If you don't want to be with Jesus now, if you have not, no time for Jesus, why do you want to go to heaven? Because heaven is defined fully, completely, and absolutely by him. And so he's calling us to the place of fellowship. Then he said about the power of his resurrection living the victorious Christian life. You see, the victory that Jesus has for us comes through that place of fellowship with him. Our cry to know Christ. Victory doesn't come because we have tenacity, we have determination, we have the, the right stuff because we cannot cure ourselves from this evil of sin. We don't have the ability to do it. It's only by grace that we are forgiven and only by grace can we overcome. It is victory through Christ and Christ alone, and there's no other means that it comes, no other way that it can happen. Living in the power of Christ's resurrection is living in the place of fellowship with this God, where we want to know him, where our cry is, I want to know Christ. And when we really want to know that, Jesus, then his resurrection power begin to flow in our life, and we will not be enslaved to sin. We will not be following hard after it. We will find victory. We will find overcoming grace to walk this walk out. If you're living defeated, if your marriage is a nightmare, it's because grace is not working in your life. When grace is working in your life, you are overcoming your sin. You are becoming victorious, or you may be in the midst of a hot battle to, to, to overcome, but the end of grace is always the same. It will be victory. It will be victory in the end because that's what Jesus gives us. That's what he offers any individual that is willing to come to him. 
Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus. Lord, you know each of us. You know us. You know who we are. You know our lives. You know our coming and our going. And we cry that you would search us, O God. Search us. Search every individual. What a terrible thing, O God, it would be to stand before you and been in church all of our life and you say, depart from me. I never knew you. And Lord, that is going to be the case of many, many, many people because they were like Paul before his conversion, religious, but they did not have a relationship with you. God, I'm asking that you'd search people, that you search lives, and that conviction would fall upon those who don't truly know you and that they would want to run home, that they would want to run home. It doesn't matter what people think. Oh, God, help them to lay aside the foolishness of pride, of religious pride. And to run to your feet and say, Jesus, I must have you at all costs. No matter what the price is, I'm willing to give up my reputation. I'm willing to give up everything I own. I'm willing to give up my life even. But I must gain Christ. I must have you. I want to know you, Jesus. Lord, I'm asking that anybody here that is not a true follower of Jesus, whatever the dynamics that brought them to that place, Lord, I'm asking that you'd help them to see it and want to run home to you. In the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to do something that may not be the norm for you, but I think it's very important. I'm going to open an altar up. I'm going to open this altar up. This altar is a meeting place with God. That you come to an altar for one reason, not because you feel you have to, but you come to an altar because you say, I must know Christ. I don't know him. I must know him. God, I don't know. I hear what that preacher's saying. I have that ache in me. I have that ache, that chasing after fog, and I'm so empty on the inside. God, I want your transformation. I want your forgiveness. I want you to come into my life. I don't care if you've been in church all your life. It's irrelevant, your, your, your past. What matters right now, where are you at? Are you in right fellowship with this God? If you were to breathe your last right now, be honest, would you really go to heaven? Don't go by what you've done years ago. Where are you right now? Is your life acceptable and pleasing to God that he'd be able to say to you right this moment, if you breathe your last right now, that he'd say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Your marriage was pleasing and acceptable to me. You were a man of God. You were a woman of God. You lived it out in your home. Your children saw a godly father, a godly mother. The people you worked with, they saw you a man of God, saw you a woman of God. Or would he say, depart from me. You never knew me. You never knew me. You were religious. You based your life upon your own self-righteousness. You never knew me. Depart from me. The most agonizing words ever to hear throughout eternity will be, depart from me. For that to go through the ears of people forever and ever, depart from me, I never knew you. And the most glorious words that will go through our heart, filling us with joy again and again throughout eternity, is enter into the joy of your Lord, thou good and faithful servant. What will you hear from the lips of Jesus? What will you hear? I'm going to open this altar up in just a moment for anybody that's not a Christian. And like I said, it doesn't matter if you've been here in this church for ages. Where are you at really right now? I'm going to ask you to come over to this part of the altar up here so that, that some people can take you side, pray with you, talk with you. 
and help you to understand what this faith is all about, what it means to become a true follower of Jesus, what it means to be truly born again. And that is radical. Being born again is radical. I'm not gonna, I don't have the time to get in that. What Jesus said there is absolutely astounding, and the church has failed to understand this revolution that goes from darkness into light. That's what Christianity, biblical Christianity, is all about. Would everybody please stand? If you are not following Jesus, if you are not right with Him, and you want to get right with Jesus, young or old, I don't care where you've been, and you want to get right with Jesus, I'm going to ask right now that you walk down the aisle and you come over here to my left so somebody can pray with you. Is there anybody here that's not a true follower of Jesus? And your cry is, now I want to know Christ. Please, is there anybody here that you are not right with Jesus and you want his salvation? If somebody went up to you and said, behind such and such a tree, there's buried a million dollars and here's how you find it. What would you do? You'd leave the service right this second and you'd be driving as fast as you can to that place trying to find that tree. You'd grab a shovel. You'd buy a dozen of them if you had to. And you'd dig all around till you found it because it was a million dollars. And yet the treasure of all treasures is being offered to you this morning. Will you not run home to him? Will you not run to him and say, Jesus, save me, please, Jesus, save me. Do you have anything you want to share?